Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. Outside of our collective recent experiences with COVID, you may not immediately think about immunizations as a significant factor in disaster preparedness and response. For example, do you think about immunization programs when you think about earthquake response? I didn't, but think about it. After a disaster that has impacted infrastructure, people are often living in close contact in temporary housing. Their immune systems are strained, they are exposed to poor sanitation, unhygienic conditions, and they have more exposure to vectors like mosquitoes, bats, and wild animals. Additionally, programs that you may take for granted, like vaccination programs, can be compromised, postponed, or even canceled in the ensuing chaos. Children are at especially high risk if their immunization schedules get disrupted by the extreme situations after a disaster, and they are especially vulnerable to infectious disease outbreaks. Today we're going to talk about disease and vaccination, and how those topics relate to disaster medicine. Today we have the privilege to have as our guest a man who devoted his career to promoting global vaccination programs and eradication of infectious disease. I'm talking about Dr. Stephen Kachi. For a little background, Dr. Kachi is a pediatrician by training who completed the CDC's two-year Epidemic Intelligence Service, or EIS, training in 1984, and who currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia after retiring in 2022. Among other prestigious job titles, he has been the Deputy Director of the U.S. National Immunization Program at the CDC, where he devoted most of his career to the global eradication of diseases such as polio, measles, and rubella. And clearly he was good at his job, as two out of the three strains of polio have been eradicated, and the third is only present in two countries in the world, Pakistan and Afghanistan. For his 40 years of service, he received a CDC Lifetime Scientific Achievement Award. Let's jump right in. So I always like to start off an episode by asking people to discuss how they got where they are in their careers, um, because it's always really interesting to find out the twists and turns of people's careers to get to their final destination. How did you get into the position that you most recently were were in? I'll try not to make that too long a story, but um, I went to medical school at at Duke University, and uh, not too long after I began... uh, I found a, a fantastic mentor, Dr. Sam Katz, uh, who is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics. And uh, I think that led me into uh, into the field of pediatrics following my medical schooling. He was one of the main, main developers of the measles vaccine. And so not only did he become a mentor in pediatrics, but uh, his uh, leadership and and mentorship really led me into the field of uh, vaccinology and and vaccines. But after after I did my residency in pediatrics at Massachusetts General Hospital, I owed the U.S. Public Health Service uh, two years of service because they'd funded two years of my uh, medical education, both my tuition as well as uh, as well as a stipend. So I chose among the possibilities working on the Navajo Reservation in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and went out there and um, had a had a fantastic time. It was uh, it was so different than uh, anything I'd ever experienced before. First time I ever had lived west of the Mississippi River, big sky country. And um, in the course of uh, 
of doing that uh, work as one of the six pediatricians uh, covering um, the eastern part of the uh, Navajo reservation. I really learned to think of, uh, of that work not only from a clinical standpoint, but also we were responsible for the lives of 150,000 or so Navajo Indians, uh, the health of them. And so really looking at, um, at uh, medicine, not just from a clinical perspective, but also from a public health perspective. The field health nurses, as a matter of fact, were very instrumental in delivering services, including vaccines to uh, Navajo children, many of whom lived in uh, very rural areas and uh, 30 to 40 percent of whom lived with families that had no running water. So uh, that public health perspective really is what led me to apply for a position at CDC in their epidemiology training program, a two-year training program. So I was lucky enough to get into that program, and uh, here I am uh, more than 40 years later uh, living in Atlanta after uh, retiring from a 40-year career at uh, CDC and working in the field of vaccines because uh, once I came to CDC, I got very involved in the uh, vaccination policy uh, uh, discussions, and uh, Dr. Katz was, in fact, the chair of CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices when I first came to CDC, so made that connection too. What kinds of things did you do at the CDC? I worked in um, first in the Division of Bacterial Diseases, doing outbreak investigations uh, for diseases like uh, like pertussis. Diphtheria was also a responsibility. Uh, and uh, then not not too much later, I moved over to the uh, what was then the Division of Immunization, now the National Immunization Program, and uh, got involved in virtually all of the vaccine preventable diseases, uh, from uh, uh, learning about the surveillance of those diseases, including the laboratories surveillance, outbreak investigation, and I'm talking about measles, mumps, rubella, polio, tetanus, and later on, you know, hepatitis B and, and, and so on. It really opened a lot of new horizons for me in terms of from a learning standpoint. And in your most recent position at the CDC, what were you doing? Okay, well, I, I, I moved from being a doer in, in those early days to being a supervisor and ultimately uh, became in charge uh, of the global immunization uh, division of the immunization program at CDC. I did a stint also for two years as the director of CDC's National Immunization Program, which is the federal program that provides grants to uh, state and local health departments uh, and uh, oversees the surveillance of vaccine preventable diseases for the U.S. But in my most recent incarnation, I was uh, really for, for about 15 years, I was in charge of the Global Immunization Division. And then after uh, stepping down from that role, became a senior advisor to the Global Immunization Division directors, who were several in number before I retired. What would you say your, uh, your greatest accomplishment was during that time? I think from a from a management and leadership standpoint, I, I think my greatest accomplishment was that we began as a uh, as a very very small program at CDC of only six people, and we were focused on uh, polio eradication. That was in 1993. And uh, by the time I stepped down from the Global Immunization Division, we had we had grown to over 200 people and a budget of 
nearly $200 million. And we had a lot of global impact with the major organizations that were involved in global immunization, WHO, UNICEF, and so on. Polio is basically eradicated at this point, right? There's only a couple of countries where it's still remaining? It is and it isn't. Um, we had a goal of eradicating naturally occurring polio from the world by the end of the year 2000. And unfortunately, we got close to that goal, but it's it's just trickling on and on uh, more than two decades later with very small number of cases in Pakistan and Afghanistan, which I think you can imagine reasons for why that has continued. These are areas where there has been ongoing uh, civil conflict, war, very poor communities, a great deal of diff difficulty in delivering polio vaccine or any vaccines or any health interventions to, to the to populations in those areas. We also have had a problem with uh, what's called vaccine-derived polio. Very rarely, the live polio virus in the, in the Sabin vaccine can back mutate to a more virulent form and actually take on outbreak characteristics of being able to create outbreaks. This is a phenomenon that only really became um, recognizable in the early 2000s. But we've had a problem in countries and areas that have very low immunization coverage with uh, outbreaks of the vaccine-derived poliovirus. How often does that happen? Well, unfortunately, in a few sub-Saharan African countries, it has been an ongoing process, and we've had um, you know, at least a few hundred cases per year over the past several years. There have been efforts and continue to be efforts to uh, create a live uh, polio vaccine that is less subject to uh, back mutation. And the type 2 component of the, of the polio vaccine, oral polio vaccine, now has such a vaccine, but we um, we still have to work on the type 1 and the type 3 versions to, to get a, a more up-to-date vaccine that's less likely to back mutate. In any of those places where there still is a little bit of polio, is there ever vaccine hesitancy or is it more just an issue of access and then like the political climate? Yeah, vaccine... Vaccine hesitancy has been a has become a global issue now. Its incubation was largely in uh, industrialized countries, particularly in the United States. If you go way back to the 1980s, but um, there is vaccine hesitancy in in a in a developing country context. It's not only caused by um, inaccurate or completely false information that's available on the internet, but also uh, underserved groups within a given country may have uh, a lack of trust of the federal and state uh, governments and and therefore are sometimes not behind the um, the vaccination programs, particularly the mass immunization campaigns that are have been a a feature of of polio eradication as well as measles elimination. Yeah, definitely seen a lot of that, especially with COVID. Um, maybe we should take a step back and talk about vaccines and some of the basics and how they're developed and how they work and just a little bit, a little bit of background about vaccinations, immunizations. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a subject that we could go on for days about. Uh, I'll try to be brief here, but uh, I, I think most, I think your listeners are probably familiar with with the basics of vaccines. Uh, 
as a person who has worked in the vaccine field for my whole life, I, I really considered them to be miracles of, uh, of, of public health. Uh, in, a, in general, there are, you could categorize vaccines uh, in two major categories, the live viral vaccines and the inactivated vaccines, which may be either viral or, or bacterial. The live viral vaccines are made from attenuating or weakening the live virus to a form where it is not capable of causing the disease, but still has the attributes that will generate the appropriate immune response to uh, create uh, hopefully lifelong immunity. And that's, that's the case, uh, for example, for measles, polio, rubella, these are live viral vaccines. Before I go any further, uh, just to mention that the development of vaccines has, particularly in the U.S., has been a longstanding public-private partnership. The NIH is the lead organization for, for the U.S. government in providing uh, research grants uh, to uh, help develop uh, vaccines in academia, in the private sector, in terms of pharmaceutical companies. And pharmaceutical companies have to invest a great deal of resources to develop uh, vaccines. And uh, they generally have a very, uh, very large, capable research uh, group that they, that they support. The timeline for developing uh, a vaccine is generally at least 10 years, usually even more than that. And the, the investment in doing so usually exceeds $1 billion or, or, or some, in some instances, far, far more. Now, getting back to the different types of vaccines, you have the live viral vaccines, then you have the inactivated vaccines where they can be viral or bacterial. An example of an inactivated viral vaccine is influenza vaccine, where you have the, the killed formalized uh, virus and that is injected and generates the appropriate immune response to provide some immunity. In the case of bacterial vaccines, usually it's some piece or part of the, of the bacteria. For example, pertussis vaccines include pertussis toxoid, along with other, other components. But the same, same idea as with live viral vaccines, trying to, if you will, trick the uh, host's immune system into developing antibodies that will, in effect, prevent uh, future infection. So uh, let's make the connection between immunizations and disaster medicine, because I think a lot of people, when they hear disaster medicine, aren't really thinking about vaccines. But I think that vaccinations and immunization programs actually play a really big part in disaster medicine. What is your opinion? Do you think there's a connection there? Uh, there's definitely a connection, and uh, it's most often the case in uh, low-income countries uh, or lower-middle-income countries. When there's famine, when there's civil unrest or war, uh, you have refugee populations that um, are uprooted from their from their livelihoods, from their from their communities, and are at great risk of uh, developing infectious diseases, including vaccine-preventable diseases. I think the biggest example, the most important example 
for children is measles. So uh, measles is the most prominent example, and I'll get back to that in just a minute, but other vaccine-preventable diseases, including polio, diphtheria, pertussis, cholera, and uh, assault migrant populations, displaced populations uh, with, with a vengeance. Uh, in the case of measles, um, often, this is, this is probably the most highly contagious infectious disease uh, that, that we have, measles. And uh, in young children who are malnourished, who have vitamin A deficiencies, it can be devastating, causing mortality rates of several percent, up to 10% in, in these challenged populations. Uh, these are really disasters that are in need of uh, rapid intervention. And with these populations living in camps with poor nutrition, with poor sanitation, uh, crowded together, it's, it's an incubator for the spread of measles and other vaccine-preventable diseases. So mass vaccination is, becomes an essential to, uh, to avert these disasters or at least lessen their, their impact. Do you see spikes in infectious disease after like a natural disaster as well? Yeah, it, it really, it depends on the uh, size of the population, of course, and the quality of the, of the surveillance. But uh, when these uh, disasters occur, there can be spread even beyond the uh, vulnerable population to the, to the general community, even, even cross-border to other countries. And so there is certainly the potential for, for bumps in, the, in the disease surveillance resulting from these, from these events. So you retired in 2022, which means that you've had at least two years, two pretty full years of COVID during your career. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in your opinion, um, do you feel like your experiences with infectious disease eradication influenced how COVID was handled? Like, what is your opinion on how the COVID pandemic was handled based on your, your experience? Yeah, I'll, I think there are, there are a lot of similarities to the work that we did in uh, disease eradication, whether it's polio or measles. Uh, the, the basic principles are the same. You need to have good surveillance, disease surveillance, including laboratory surveillance to identify where the, the uh, COVID-19 virus is and in what populations it resides. Uh, uh, you need to have good outbreak investigation to really create some specificity about which groups are being affected and gear your interventions accordingly. And you need you need to have mass vaccination to increase population immunity as quickly as possible, uh, which we have done, which we did in the U.S. when the vaccines first became available. And then, in an ongoing, sustainable basis, we need to. Uh, increase and maintain high routine immunization coverage. So those four principles, which are sort of the uh, the mantra of uh, polio eradication, measles eradication, are also the basic principles that we had to uh, to uh, implement uh, as much as possible, as 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 best as possible, uh, for the COVID outbreak, COVID nineteen uh, outbreak, and. One thing that I didn't mention, but it also very, very important is risk communication, good social mobilization, so that the population has as good an understanding as possible of the benefits uh, of, of the vaccines and 
and knows where to go and when, if in the case of mass vaccination, to get themselves and their children uh, vaccinated. So those basic principles, I think you would agree, uh, became a part of the COVID-19 uh, response. I definitely agree. Do you feel like uh, those principles were done well without getting too political? <laughs> I think um, I think the, print, the, the principles basically were done about as well as possible, but there certainly were some, uh, some uh, pitfalls. Uh, first of all, in the, the, develop, the very early development of a diagnostic test for COVID-19, there was a problem at CDC. This is in the very early goings with developing a diagnostic test that was sensitive and specific. And uh, we lost a few weeks until that uh, diagnostic test was corrected. And there also wasn't enough availability of the diagnostic test, so it caused surveillance to, to suffer. So I'm, I'm gonna focus on the things that didn't go right, even though overall we saved well over a million lives in, in, in the longer term. Another thing that didn't go right was the risk communication and the uh, developing a trusted relationship with the, with the general public. I will not go into the politics of that, but I think that was seriously uh, compromised during the administration uh, at the White House. Uh, even independent of that, the fact that uh, cor coronavirus uh, variants kept appearing one after the other really complicated the uh, the delivery of of those uh, those interventions in terms of having to develop new vaccines to address those variants and over time because because things were changing on a regular basis the communication messages needed to change and it was very difficult to keep the communication straightforward and simple and not lose the public so that was a, that's been another criticism of the overall enterprise but I think my personal view is that we're in a, a very good place right now because we overcame so many things to get to where we are now, including the fact that uh, there was no vaccine and, have, and that vaccine got uh, developed in the most rapid way in history. Why were we able to get a vaccine so quickly? We still don't have an HIV vaccine, right? What was what was different about COVID that allowed us to really like get going and get that vaccine out? Yeah, it's a very good question, um, and it really depends. It depends on the microorganism. There are many differences among microorganisms, and I think uh, HIV is uh, probably one of the most confounding uh, microorganisms to try to develop a vaccine. But uh, in the case of coronavirus, the ability to to move so quickly was based on the fact that well, messenger RNA was first identified back in, I think, 1961-1962. A lot was learned, the scientific armamentarium to proceed with mRNA vaccines had developed over, over the ensuing 60 years, especially in the, in the last 20 years. So scientific uh, discoveries really formed the basis and the background for pursuing uh, mRNA vaccines uh, quickly. But in addition to that, investment. I told you that it takes a long time for generally to bring a vaccine to market. And often the, the financing is well over a billion dollars a year. In this instance, there were billions and billions of dollars invested over a very short period of time, both by the federal government and by companies. 
the other thing is that the beauty of mRNA vaccines, there's, there's really nothing like, nothing like them. And uh, I think that made it possible to move as quick, quickly as we did. So, so it was both a, it was both a situation of good preparation from a scientific basis, incredible investment, and the beauty and uniqueness of M messenger RNA vaccines that made it possible to, to happen so quickly. What lessons do you think were learned from the COVID outbreak that will help us for future outbreaks? Well, I think um, I think doing a better job of overcoming those um, some of those problems that I mentioned. For example, the developing a diagnostic test if it's a, if it's a new if it's a new disease, opening opening up the the way for for that development to occur in a less rarefied atmosphere as a CDC laboratory and uh, investing in that very early on. Pandemic preparedness. After um, the H1N1 uh, uh, outbreak that began in Mexico and luckily was largely averted in the, in the U.S., pandemic preparedness became a very important priority during the Obama administration. And there was a pandemic preparedness program and a great deal of thought put into what the components of that would be so that the, the country and the world would be better prepared for an ensuing um, epidemic. Uh, unfortunately, that whole program and team was, uh, was dissolved in 2017. And uh, I think we need to learn that lesson and be much better prepared for the, for the next uh, pandemic. What kinds of changes in the field of immunization have happened since the beginning of your career? I would say that one major change, um, when I first started working in the immunization policy realm in, the, in the circa 1990, there were, I think there were about seven or eight vaccines that were routine childhood immunizations. By the early 2000s, that number had doubled to 16. And now I think we're we're over 20 in, in terms of the number of vaccines. Uh, I talk about the miracle of vaccines. I think it's also the miracle of vaccine development. We have done so much to, uh, to expand the horizons of learning ways to prevent uh, infectious diseases uh, with vaccines that it's just been an incredible sea change. But with that, there's a complexity. There's a complexity about what do all these vaccines do can we give these vaccines uh, simultaneously or not? Providing the appropriate communication information, educational information to parents so that they understand the value of vaccines and uh, the, the fact that the, that the benefits profoundly outweigh the risks of these vaccines in overcoming the false uh, communications about the lack of safety of, of, of vaccines. So. We've, we're in a much more complicated world now. Along with that, uh, today's parents, by and large, have not seen these these infectious diseases, and so it's it's a it's a further challenge to promote these vaccines and to get to high immunization coverage when there's there's not a, a a concrete understanding on the part of parents and the community by virtue of the fact that they've seen these these diseases. The, morbidity and the mortality that they can cause. So we're, we're in a very challenging situation to maintain high immunization coverage and population immunity 
when these uh, diseases are have either been wiped off the face of the earth or very nearly so. Did the COVID pandemic and the ensuing mass vaccination do anything to change vaccine hesitancy? Did it increase it or decrease it? Were other uh, immunizations more likely to be administered after that, or was there really no change? Uh, very good question. I think overall, the, the, the COVID experience has uh, further challenged uh, immunization programs because it has led to a mushrooming of false information about COVID vaccine safety, as well as by extension, vaccine safety in general. And so it has further challenged the, uh, the ability of the immunization programs to, uh, to maintain trust with the community and to maintain uh, high vaccination coverage. Fortunately for children, the uh, routine immunization coverage for the, uh, for the recommended vaccines of childhood has remained quite high, approaching 95% for each of the vaccines by school entry and uh, at least 90% by two years, two years of age. But it has been a great challenge and will continue to be. Unfortunately, uh, COVID vaccination became a political football back and forth. And I hope we can get beyond that as we go forward. Is there any new promising research or innovation um, in this field, in vaccination or immunization fields that you're excited about? Well, I think um, messenger RNA vaccines is, is one big area that is quite promising. And uh, companies that have developed uh, these vaccines are, are, are looking at new candidates with their research. Uh, flu vaccine, RSV, even HIV, and cytomegalovirus vaccines. So it remains to be seen whether these, whether these uh, biological agents will be as amenable to uh, messenger RNA vaccines as, as was the case or has been the case for COVID. Can you explain what is different about an mRNA vaccine? Well, uh, being very, very basic, I think uh, messenger RNA is injected and it is able to uh, attach to ribosomes and churn out copies of the spike protein of COVID-19 in great amounts uh, because uh, the messenger RNA codes for that spike protein. And when it attaches to the ribosome, it can just continue to make one, one protein uh, component after another. So it's, uh, it's really a marvelous new uh, scientific technology and uh, very safe, very safe as well. So uh, let's see whether uh, such a technology is going to be applicable to other biological agents, other microorganisms. The other thing that I think uh, has been highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic is the value of PCR diagnosis. It's, it's a fabulous technology. It is very uh, sensitive and very specific. It's complex though, so one has to be very careful about not having contamination of, of the environment, the laboratory environment where the testing is done. But before COVID-19, uh, not many people ever heard of PCR. You know, what's PCR? But that, that, is, uh, that is a fantastic, relatively new technology that uh, has been of tremendous benefit. So as a physician and a scientist, especially a pediatric uh, physician um, who I assume strongly believes in the effectiveness of vaccines, what are some common misconceptions that you've faced over your career with, with vaccines and how to address them? 
Well, I think it goes goes back to the uh, vaccine safety issue. Um, there are many charlatans out there that would like to draw attention to themselves and uh, create false concepts or misconceptions among the, among the general pu public. And uh, for example, the idea that having the natural disease, your child getting the natural disease is better than taking the vaccine because it'll it'll provide better immunity, uh, lifelong immunity, and uh, there won't be any poisonous components that uh, have to be injected into into the body. I, I think that's that's sort of uh, part and parcel of the uh, the, the biggest uh, issue that has faced uh, pediatricians and the public health community at large, trying to improve risk communication and. You know, there's a certain segment of the population that will never be, you can never convince them otherwise. You can never convince them that vaccines are indeed safe and effective, but one has to continually improve one's communication uh, uh, and risk communication in order to and have that be a high priority so that we will continue to enjoy high population immunity against these uh, vaccine preventable diseases. Do you have any ideas about how medicine and public health can continue to improve on managing vaccine hesitancy and sort of combat some of these misconceptions? I think the main, the most important thing, and, and I alluded to it uh, just a, a minute ago, is investing in the communication tools and the, uh, the health education tools, making that a priority, because that's true for every health intervention but it's especially true for for vaccines because by and large we are we are delivering a health intervention to a healthy child almost all of the time and so the the bar is is very high to deliver a health intervention to a healthy child uh, rather than antibiotics to a sick child to make the child well so you got a very, very high bar there that uh, has to be overcome. So I think we uh, we have to continue to put a very high priority on uh, health education and risk communication. And we have to continue to put a very high priority on, on vaccines and on the immunization program because it's so problematic that uh, the public and politicians do not see success. The success is the absence of measles. And it's it's not visible. It's not it's not evident. If you know what I mean. Oh, I totally understand. Um, do you have any ideas of what kinds of communication tools would be helpful? I'm not a communication specialist, but I think one very important principle is that, particularly in a country like the size of ours, of more than 330 million people, the communication messages have to be localized. It's not a one-size-fits-all. You can't put a, a few uh, communication specialists in a, in a room and have them cook up an all-encompassing message that will go out throughout the country. You have to tailor those communication messages and that health education to the local populations, different racial and ethnic groups, different religious groups. It's got to be local solutions. And so a lot of flexibility in the development of those communication messages at the local level is is essential. So you've had a very interesting career and a productive one, it seems like, and I'm sure you have a lot of awesome stories. Can you tell us a memorable story from your career? One of the most exciting things that happened to me was very early in my career. I was a 
I was an EIS officer, an Epidemic Intelligence Service officer at CDC, which was this epidemiology training program. And it was 1984. So I was uh, only recently had arrived at uh, CDC. And uh, there was a call for CDC to help with uh, the control of a meningococcal meningitis outbreak in Kathmandu in Nepal. There were hundreds and hundreds of cases in this epidemic. It was early in the calendar year. Uh, and this is meningococcal group A, which is which is also called epidemic meningitis because it had historically it has, has the propensity to cause very large epidemics of uh, meningococcal meningitis periodically in it's sort of an eight to 10 year cycle. Still wet behind the ears, uh, I was uh, in, involved in going to Kathmandu to help the government in controlling this this outbreak. Already hundreds and hundreds, I think, cases had already gotten into the thousands at that point in time. It was a very tense and very anxiety-provoking situation. As you can imagine, uh, there was panic, a lot of panic in the, among the, the population, also among the uh, the physicians, you know, uh, but we brought 200,000 doses of meningococcal group A, meningococcal vaccine, and we brought a, a bunch of push pedal jet injector guns so you could deliver the vaccine subcutaneously very quickly to large numbers of people. And uh, looking, we had to look at the epidemiology and the, uh, of the uh, uh, meningococcal meningitis in, uh, in Kathmandu. So we had to put surveillance in place or bolster the surveillance that was already uh, in place in the four or so major hospitals in the Kathmandu Valley and try to develop very quickly a portrait of in whom was uh, meningococcal meningitis occurring and what was the age what was the age group so we could figure out what the target population would be. Ultimately, we settled on a target population of one to 25 year olds. We had to exclude infants because the vaccine, which was a polysaccharide vaccine was not immunologically uh, beneficial in children less than one year of age. It wouldn't, wouldn't develop an adequate immune response. So we, uh, and then we set up a training, both surveillance training for a cadre of, uh, of the health workers, as well as how to use these jet injector guns. And we developed vaccination, team, vaccination teams. We would have fixed sites throughout the, the valley and uh, uh, and mobile vaccination teams, and we would move the fixed sites over time. It was sort of the classic public health response to a disaster, a natural disaster, right? And uh, I learned so much as a wet behind the ears epidemiologist. And over a period of about four weeks, we we vaccinated about three hundred twenty-five thousand people under circumstances that were pretty very modest, if you can imagine how poor the the, uh, the population was and the and the resources uh, that were available. When we had pretty much uh, used just about all of the vaccine we had, we 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 came with two hundred thousand doses and then we ultimately got another two hundred thousand doses shipped shipped in. Remember, this was a time when uh, there were no cell phones. <laughs> there was no internet. It was very remote uh, conditions, even in the capital city of uh, Nepal. And uh, if I wanted to call home, you'd have a difficulty getting a connection. But 
if you were successful in getting a connection, it was about $5 a minute to talk to anybody. So anyway, the bottom line was uh, we packed up and sort of handed over the reins to the um, to the ministry to complete the sort of the mop up uh, vaccination uh, in, in the Kathmandu Valley. And some were very concerned because they knew that there had been very there'd been very recent cases, you know, quite a few very recent cases. And how can you go? And so but we said, you know, we've gotten very high immunization coverage. There's going to be very high population immunity. And based on the historical pattern of meningococcal meningitis uh, epidemics, it's going to disappear very, very quickly. And in fact, it did not long after we left. So it uh, had an enduring effect on my career and my view of uh, the vaccines, the value of vaccines, and also the uh, value of public health and public health interventions. Wow. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Um, I have a couple follow-up questions because that was 1984, you said. So I was negative three years old at that point. <laughs> um, how were you able to gather that that epidemiological data? Was there a public health department that would get the information from the different hospitals? Or how are they getting that in those remote, that kind of remote area? I certainly had the help of... Uh a number of uh, Nepali public health workers and infectious disease people. And I regularly visited each of the, there were four major hospitals. Since it's such a devastating disease, most of the cases presented to hospital, even though the ability of the hospitals to treat these uh, patients was not very good. So it made uh, surveillance and case counting a lot easier. And I had point people at each of the hospitals that, uh, uh, assisted me, helped helped with the collection of the of the information. So you actually physically had to go around to these hospitals and get the information, or have somebody go to the hospital and get that, and then and then report it to you, so that you could do the epi curves and all of your analysis. Exactly, and another CDC person who accompanied me was a public health advisor who had worked in late in the smallpox eradication program and knew how to operate these uh, uh, jet injector guns, because I certainly didn't, and uh, did the training and uh, and kept them uh, in, in good use. You, you know, they would be checked in at the end of each uh, of each day, and he would uh, patch them up, fix them up if they, if they needed a little bit of uh, updating to, to keep them in use. So, uh, and we, we moved around the city also, checking out the fixed sites and the and the mobile teams to make sure they were doing their job and of course there was a there was also a mass social mobilization campaign uh, banners uh, radio there was there was no tv in Kathmandu or in nepal at that at that point in time but uh, radio and uh, mass microphone movements through the city to uh, appraise people of uh, the campaign's purpose where they should go to be vaccinated and so on. That was my next question was how you got the word out that you were doing this mass vaccination program, but you answered it. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I am trying to imagine what this jet injector gun thing is like. I've never seen it or heard of it. So I'm going to have to look that up later. Can you explain it a little bit more? It actually, you had a foot pedal. It was a hydraulic. You didn't require electricity. So it was a hydraulic foot pedal you'd you'd push the pedal do down and it would uh, it would create a pressure 
that would force the uh, force the uh, dose of a uh, vaccine subcutaneously. It wouldn't even it wouldn't leave a mark on the skin as long as you pushed it hard against the skin. It would leave no mark. It would inject it sub-Q. And you had a 50-dose vial that attached to the uh, the gun in a way that would draw in the exact amount of the dose, five-tenths of a milliliter, and then you'd pump the pedal and, and it would get in subcutaneously. So there was no needle? No needle. Needle-free. Ah. Now, um, wow. these jet injector devices are... There are modern devices that can be used on a smaller scale than this. These would be used to to vaccinate, you know, many hundreds of people in a day. In the early 90s, it became concerned that, particularly if they were not operated properly, that there might be some there might be some risk of transmitting hepatitis B or other you know, bloodborne uh, uh, diseases. And so they ultimately were taken off the market. There are small handheld injector guns that are used today in, in, in some clinics, not to vaccinate as nearly the same number of people as these jet injector guns were able to. That's amazing. I've literally never heard of this. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, that shows uh, just how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Any thoughts about how to get involved? Well, you could work with your local or state health departments. They are very good avenues for getting some good learning and experience with dealing with uh, the control and prevention of vaccine-preventable diseases and getting involved in just how a vaccination program works at the, at the local level. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so that's probably the, the best way to learn. All right. Thank you very much. That is all for me. Thanks for coming on and taking your time to be here. And thank you for having me. I hope your audience will go away with the view that vaccination is a, an important part of disaster assistance, and they may very well get involved in vaccination campaigns and the delivery of vaccines under natural disaster conditions. Thank you again, Dr. Kachi, for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. <laughs>